0: Episode 46, Connecting the Physical and Philosophical Realms. Welcome to the story in your head. I'm Ron Macklin, and today, Deb, myself, and guest Peter Worth discuss the connections between the physical, metaphysical, and philosophical realms. We dive into how many philosophical practices and ideologies are related and how they are translating to and impacting our everyday lives. Are you looking to strengthen your relationships, whether personally or professionally? You want to learn how to build authentic connections faster? Or perhaps you're looking to beat employee burnout through the power of connection? My name is Ron Macklin, founder of Macklin Connections. And in our workshops, we teach you the fundamentals of how to do exactly that and more. To learn more of the power of your relationships, visit us at MacklinConnection.com. Welcome to the Story in Your Head podcast. Today, our guest is Peter. And Peter, if you could start, like, could you give a brief introduction of yourself for our listeners to, to know who you are?
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I have a a bit of a, I don't want to call it a split personality necessarily, but I have kind of two tracks that sort of describe what I do and who I am, I guess. One is sort of a professional track, which is based around computer science, uh, information technology, and systems. And I've been doing that professionally for a couple of decades now. And another track has been what you might call sort of a philosophical or a mystical track. And that is about three decades long as well that, that you know, started with spiritual practices and yoga and sort of got a little heavier into philosophy, theology, and the writing of some books and, and, and a blog, which I think will be part of what we cover and, and explore a little bit today. So, I mean, outside of that family, I've got two older kids in college and, and a younger boy, and that's been an adventure. So,
2: Great. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about your research as well. Tell us about your research and and what was the story in your head that changed because of the research you're doing? You know, I think that it sort of all sources back
1: to as I was getting out of school and trying to figure out what to do with my life, more or less, I was playing and coaching and doing a lot of tennis at a pretty high level, at, at a level where sort of the mental aspects of the game became very relevant and very pertinent. And so the idea of, you know, not only controlling the body, but also looking at, you know, the impact and effect of the mind on athletic performance was sort of got me into yoga. And as I sort of dove deeper into yoga, was very attracted to a lot of the metaphysics and the philosophy that surrounds the system and ended up studying with a group of monks from the Ramakrishna order on the Upper East Side. So shout out to the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Center of New York and studied with them for a while. Was initiated by a teacher out of that center, and you know they have a very strong academic bent and tradition coming out of, of of that from Swami Vivekananda on down. And studied with them for a while and became very interested in sort of the philosophy and the metaphysics and the theology, which is sort of all tied together. So, and then over the course of several decades, there was a keen interest in you know trying to understand really from a metaphysics standpoint, kind of what's really going on. Because you you know, I think as you as you do a lot of thinking about some of these topics, the underlying structure at some level should inform, you know, your behavior, your goals, right, and what your general purpose of being here is. So, you know, there's psychological elements to that. Theology and religion sort of addresses some of those pieces, but for me as more of an engineer. It was always, well, hold on, hold on. Let's let's not make any assumptions about who or what, but let's look at, you know, what we can learn from not only our physical environments, but also our psyches, right? Which is how we sort of interact and interface with people and the world itself. What can we say about those things and from that kind of build out your your sort of moral compass and your basic kind of life goals and things that should you know motivate you day to day right and you know ultimately many of those things come back to you know episodes that people have in their lives and i'm no exception where you know how you used to things think of things you know sort of crumbles and sort of falls apart in some ways right and you know people go through various thresholds and have sort of various experiences that make them reevaluate things from the ground up and so as I kind of did that, certainly as a young man in my early 20s, and as I got married for the first time, you know, you really, I spent a lot of time thinking about what it is that I could truly say was what I what it is that I could truly say I really knew for sure. And how that dovetailed into not only my psychological or mystical practices, but also my day to day life and, you know, where physics and computer science and engineering was from an empirical standpoint, you know, so or, you know, tried to sort of synthesize that, and much of my writing reflects that, to synthesize that all together, not necessarily in, in sort of how to behave day to day, but what we could really say about the structure of existence, the structure of reality, that is very much aligned with, you know, ancient philosophical systems, Eastern philosophical systems, more so perhaps than the Western side, and, you know, and how that comes to inform, you know, not only my writing, but also my research and from an engineering standpoint that, that dovetails into metaphysics, ultimately.
0: Thanks. Just for our listeners to hold it, right? You talk about metaphysics, you talk about mystics, mystical, right? And you talk about engineering. So could you, like, how do you use those terms like engineering and then mystical and the metaphysics?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And that is the area in particular that I'm interested is right sort of between that trifecta of the three. So, you know, we'll start with, you know, the mind and experience, which from a mystical perspective, there's basically a handbook that's been given down in various traditions about the exploration of the mind. If you look at Patanjali, for example, I think the first sutra is you know, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuation of the mind, right, which is thoughts, right? So it's the science of the mind. And when you look at you sort of it falls under the umbrella of mysticism, but there's a science there. And it's a very ancient science. And if you want to explore the validity of the science, what you need to do is just spend some time meditating. And you know, forget about what everybody else says, right? Do it yourself and see what happens. Well, I did that for 20 or 30 years, right? So there's a sort of a psychological kind of empirical foundation that was constructed there, which is seated and rooted from an intellectual perspective in the mystical traditions, primarily Vedanta, which is the one that I was trained in. But also there's a Taoist element of that. And there's also Hermetic and a lot of those mystical traditions. When you get to their very core, they're, a lot of them are virtually the same, which is why they've called it perennial philosophy and, and written many, many books about that stuff. Then you have, from a metaphysics standpoint, you can extrapolate from the individual experience and from the philosophical literature, you can extrapolate a system of metaphysics that's consistent with that, right? Which is also consistent with physics at some level, like how does you know, things or objects behave? And then there's sort of a middle ground between physics and metaphysics, which is sort of the area of my specific interest in research right now, which is computer science and engineering. As you look at artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example, what we're able to do now is effectively empirically validate whether or not these philosophical systems are well-grounded or not, right? When you look at AI, you look at how these systems behave and how they learn, you see a lot of the same kind of design patterns fall out. That could be a coincidence or that could be, in fact, because we're onto something, right? Or maybe there's some engineering involved in terms of how we're designed right? There's lots of different places you can go from that philosophically. But so you have mystical, sort of the psychological element on the one hand, and then you have the metaphysical, which is sort of above the physical and above the psychological, right? What are the sort of cornerstones of reality? And then, you know, adjacent to that, you have the sort of physical reality, which is, you know, the laws of physics and social norms and other things that day to day, you know, can't be be ignored necessarily. So, we live, I think, at a very, very interesting and unique time where much of the tenets of the mystical tradition are starting to, we're starting to gain techniques to be able to explore their validity and in a way that w- we couldn't do a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago. And so i you know, I'm, I'm starting to dive into that from a computer engineering standpoint right now. And that's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's highly technical but you don't look at, you don't see very many computer scientists and engineers that are looking at the challenge and the discipline of metaphysics as it relates to you know, their particular field, which is very empirically grounded, right? I mean, I have inputs and I have outputs and I can tell you know whether or not what it is that I've constructed is deriving the same conclusions that I would as a human being, right? Well, now you have something that can empirically validate you know, the thought process in general, or, you know, and this is a bit of a stretch goal, you know, the validity of philosophical systems at some level, right? And, you know, I think the next, as we go through the next few decades, there'll be some really interesting developments from an engineering standpoint and from a humanity humanity standpoint, which start to tie some of these things together and take some of the uncertainty and the unknowns out of the philosophical and theological literature, which is, uh, you know, there's an element of faith there, but you want to at least be, you know, guided as empirically as you as you can, because you know, these how you sort of line your life goals up is a is a very important question, and and you want to base those on as you know as solid a ground as as you can. I think it's fair to say.
2: Thank you, Peter. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I'm so triggered to think about how machine learning and human learning and what you've noticed right now is. How are they different, and uh, wh- what is leading you to those techniques that really are going to get us to that next point where those models come together?
1: Yeah, so it's a it's a really good that's a really good question. So you can think of yeah those sort of three main areas, right? If you look at the sort of the mystical or the psychic area, there's a fundamental question about what is the nature of mind versus what is the nature of consciousness, right? So and you know that's a, that's a whole area that in many respects is not really in grounded in, in much empirical data, just because it's a very difficult problem. And so, you know, in neuroscience, and there's a lot of different theoretical frameworks that are being put forward, and many of them are very, very interesting. Not much so from a computer science standpoint, particularly from a machine learning standpoint, because primarily those academics are driven towards building and solving problems that have commercial applicability right? And these types of questions, I mean, computer engineers are infamous for not, you know, not only not caring about people generally, because they like machines, right? But, but philosophy is like, I mean, they don't even, I have an old advisor of mine that, that has read some of my material, who's actually uh, a fairly religious person. He, he's a fairly Catholic person. And he's, it's funny, because, you know, he'll conclude after reading a bunch of a bunch of my work, he's, he's well, you know, okay, so your opinion, the next guy's opinion, the next guy's opinion, what, How do you even tell the difference, right? It's just, you know, and you look at the sort of tradition of Western philosophy, in many respects, you can just sort of go along the line and be like, well, yeah, they all have a point, but how do you determine which one's right? And and you get into sort of this this endless debate, right? But when you look at the psyche, you you can extrapolate out and Kant does a very nice job of this. In fact, one of my last books is about sort of a Gnostic reading of Kant. But he basically extrapolates out the process by which we acquire knowledge, and somewhat indirectly the process by which we think. And he developed a, a fairly rigorous system of, of metaphysics around this. This is his critique of pure reason, basically. And it's a model, right? I mean you can't necessarily say this is the only truth and there is, you know, and, and there's been all sorts of debate around it. But that process of thinking, irrespective of the question of consciousness or the question of a soul necessarily, but that process of thinking now is where massive billions of dollars of investment is going into in terms of how to replicate it, right? Now, in many respects, and computer scientists generally don't really want to get into this debate, or the fact that I can engineer something that does basically the same thing as we do, well, you know, what's artificial? What's human intelligence? What is intelligence? And you get into sort of this endless debate question. But what you can say is that certainly for some types of problems, we've identified fairly, very robust frameworks in terms of how you solve them. I'll give you an example, specifically, a natural language processing. There's been what you would say is revolutionary developments in the last two decades that are specific to how we understand language and how we interact with other systems from a language perspective. I don't know if you guys read the news, but uh, around artificial intelligence, there was a, somebody from Google Labs a couple of weeks ago that made a claim to the media that their chatbot was sentient and it should be given and granted rights. Right. So it's like a little bit of an, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov type situation, honestly. And he has been terminated for a variety of reasons <laughs> that we don't need to get into. But like these are the questions that we're confronted with at some level. Right. But so, how does someone engineer a chatbot that effectively seems and behaves, from a linguistic standpoint, like a human? So, first and foremost, you have to train it against, and we can do that now against massive volumes of data because the computing resources are available and the algorithms are available to train it. So, that means what do you? What does it mean to train a chat uh, chatbot? It means you have inputs and outputs. You ask them a question, you get a response, right? And you rank a whole list of responses and then the machine learns how to optimize that. It does that through a variety of geometric and algebraic and mathematical means, but that's effectively how these things are trained. What becomes interesting then is the, and where you get this sort of biological to computing analogy that's, that's, you know, been drawn in the literature and in some sense is cliche at this point is you have these sort of neural networks that they have fallen upon that seem to be the optimal structures through which this process of learning can happen. And it's in very much akin to architecturally how your synopses are set up in your brain, right? Neurologically. Now, this could be an accident, right? You've got a whole philosophical community that declares that, you know, it's just a coincidence. One thing has nothing to do with the other. And the fact that we can build something with a certain set of algorithms and structures doesn't necessarily mean the brain is operating the same way with its neurons, right? But you have a okay, well, nature decided on an optimal type of framework, through which thinking can occur, right? Somehow we've landed on the same thing, right? Like, maybe that's not an accident, right? So, and then you start to beg the question, right? Like, well, okay, so now we're starting to come up with some of the same design patterns that nature does. And then you get into sort of the golden pie ratio and spirals and then sacred geometry and all that stuff. Right. It's like sacred geometry on steroids. In fact, one of the last books that is just being published is specific to sacred geometry, because it's been, you know, you see kind of these things that flow out of nature. Right. As design patterns that show up in math and geometry, right? And then physics as well. And then you sort of have this sort of philosophy of mathematics in terms of how the world behaves, right? So is that evidence of intelligent design? Well, you know, no one wants to wade into that topic necessarily, but it is a very fascinating coincidence that we're starting to fall into and find some of those same design patterns across all these disciplines. So Again, from a metaphysics standpoint, well, what does that mean? I have two data points, right? Nature is coming up with these design patterns. They seem to work heuristically to solve some of the same problems. What can be said about that structure and its origins, right? And then, you know, now you're in metaphysics land. You're not not in theology, right, necessarily. You're in sort of that layer between the two, right? And that's been you know, again, the area consistently, which has been most interesting to me, and it's as an engineer, and you think about building things, you know, you can very much get yourself into the mindset of someone who might construct something that looks like a biological system that has a brain, and from a memory standpoint, has a DNA structure tied to it, right? So, you know, evolved from nature out of it. Okay, sure. But it, found a pretty amazing design pattern through that whole process. Maybe that's all natural and you know by coincidence or happenstance or any of that. or maybe there was some engineering involved, right? So you know y- you can't say one way or the other, but the fact that we can build things that end up sort of looking like the same thing is like, okay, well that's from a feasibility standpoint, you've at least proven something, right? So you know now there's some empirical ground that you can at least hold on to.
0: Thanks, Peter. So, and you got a four-year-old and some kids in college, like, what do you see will matter to them about where you're going or what's going, what, where we as a species race or biology, right? Where we're going with this, What what's it going to matter to her? Like, what, what do they need to be getting prepared for or what difference will it make for them? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. So for, for, I'd start by answering and saying, first of all, having a little boy while you're exploring these topics is fascinating because you can see how their brain evolves and how they learn. And, you know, you, you sort of fall into those same design patterns, right? So we as like grown adults, we've all been educated and schooled, right? We don't remember when we learned, you know, what red was, you know, or what a table was, right? And there is a, a long, very painful and arduous process that takes a tremendous amount of energy and time for a child to pick up on those basic ideas. And like my son right now is learning what, is, what letters are, you know, and pulling all those pieces together. So you have this massive you know set of knowledge right that you know society you know brings these children up in right and you can see that parallels in terms of how they learn and how the systems are designed so you can see that as sort of another sort of uh, example now what's also interesting culturally that's going on right now is you know a lot of people are questioning a lot of things about how culture and how society have been set up whether it's gender roles or any of that stuff and a lot of kind of, in some respects, an artifact of sort of this postmodern tradition where like everything is sort of power structured based and not necessarily predicated on on truth necessarily, right? So everything can be questioned, right? But, you know, it becomes more relevant in times like those where you're teaching your children how best to be able to approach a subject to identify where truth may be, right? And that's not necessarily a skill that we teach certainly young children, right? Because- Many other questions, you know, like, why is the sky blue, right? I mean, you can't have a, that type of a scientific conversation with a five-year-old. So you start with telling them, well, you know, God made the sky blue, or, you know, is, there's a guy who keeps the sky up every day, whatever it is, right? Those stories. And you start with that, right? But like, at some point, you'd like to think that, that and particularly as I've seen my kids become more proficient with reading and writing as high schoolers and now into college, where they start to be able to think critically about certain topics whether it's a historical subject or an event that happened or a philosophical subject my son's studying political philosophy so like machiavellian all that stuff i mean if w- what i see for for whatever it's worth is in many respects the and the teachers probably can't help themselves and my wife is by the way also a school teacher in STEM. so i, I have a perspective from a teaching standpoint too is that they come to the table with sort of right answers in some respects and they are pushing the kids in a certain direction, right? And I think there's a reaction, certainly in the parent community to that, but that's okay. Like everybody's got their own bent one way or the other, as long as there's some freedom of thought that's allowed and permitted for the kids to start to learn how to critically think and break apart an issue. Because, you know, that skill is going to be absolutely critical for the next few decades as we try and kind of reconstruct our society, whatever it means. Right? So, you know, is the earth flat or not? Right? I mean, you got to don't take anybody's word for it, but make an informed decision. You have to know how to be able to navigate through those waters, right? I mean, climate change is a big one. All of that stuff that informs our politics and which will drive kind of the structure of our society here in the West over the next couple of decades. I think that's the most important thing that the kids are learning. And depending upon which, you know, environment the kids are in, you know, they're going to be taught those skills to a greater or lesser extent, you know, some of that stuff you can get from your house. But you know, I mean, when you stop listening to your parents, like at 10 or 12, right? So they have to sort of learn it from somewhere else at, at some level. But I mean, look, the next 100 years, I, when you when you sort of zoom even further up, right, you look at climate change, you look at what's going on with the environment, and you look at sort of the socio political shifts that are associated with that. And then you have this massive rapid increase in artificial intelligence and robotics which is you know going to continue to change all sorts of industries you know it's going to be a different kind of environment that our kids grow up in particularly because they don't want to go to an office too right
0: yeah yeah, yes peter it's i think it's even like even bigger than they don't want to go to an office they're not even going to get their education from the places that we got our education from we went to schools and we went to universities and you know this is our our track right and yeah. when I grew up, that was like, it was a given, like skies up and grounds below, and we go to school, right? Yeah. And now my kids don't, they don't even go to, when they're in school, they didn't go to school. They used, they used yeah. the internet. They used all their networks of friends and everything else to get things done. And they're in a world of they don't need to go to school anymore because education is available almost everywhere in all different places, including this podcast, right? And so what we're doing now is a part of that shift that's happening. And it's, it's going to be a dramatic where we were put into education factories, right? Go through these steps, do these things, get to the end, go to this place, get the job, go to retire, die. Right. And they don't have that story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a massive shift. And you have this sort of like anything else, right? You have inertia from all the universities that are trying to kind of put the brakes on this, but it's too late. I mean, you could get an MIT education from YouTube, right? I mean, you're not going to get the degree, but the same professors, It's the same material. You have access to the same textbooks, right? So, I mean, for people that are motivated, right? There's a a whole new world of information available now, which by the way, one of the only ways I was able to perform a lot of my research from my desk was because we live in the era of information now where everything, you know, ancient Chinese text translations are available online today. Where, you know, when I was an undergrad, I had to go to the library and search out, there were four books. And none of my, you know, I'd have to go to a different library somewhere, you know, and now everything is readily available. And, you know, I think the kids don't even recognize how amazing that is, that any piece of information is available at your fingertips from anywhere.
0: When I remember being a kid, we get in the car and go somewhere. What'd we do? Listen to the radio. Well, that that's the yeah. only option we had now. Right. That was it. Like listen to radio yeah. and, and the news that went with the radio and all that stuff. Now you get in the car, and go somewhere, listen to a podcast right you get a chance to listen to a book you get all just the access the amount of time you have available to learn to to connect to uh, to grow is just dramatically different and it's going to open up a new space that i have no idea what what everybody's going to figure out from that new space of possibilities
1: yeah it's 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 absolutely revolutionary you know and you and you don't necessarily see it happen but it you know over the last 15 20 years right i mean it's everything has shifted to the point where when covid hit you now have the ability, right? There's this whole social shift that's occurred because everybody realized, hey, we don't have to go to offices. And uh, you know, all of a sudden, the infrastructure's in place to support that, and like, all, now all of a sudden, the whole work environment's changed, right? I mean, that whole game is totally different now, right?
0: So, Peter, I'd like to, if I could interrupt, there's a space here where, you probably had dozens of these, but there was probably some moment as you were going through your learning, your development, your, your curiousness was driving you somewhere, right? And you had what we call an imaginal moment, which you go, whoa, didn't see that one coming. It shifts my entire world. What was what was at least one of those for you as you went through this?
1: Well, I think look, the most recent one, and I've talked to Melissa quite a bit about this, and it's, it's somehow how we met, but continuing along the lines of the sort of empirical foundations of mysticism, right? As a practicing meditator, you can sort of build your own set of data points, right? And a couple of years ago, when we first moved down to Florida, I wrote a book called Homo Mysticus, which was effectively a scurrying down the rabbit hole from more or less, and a a sort of a transcription of the events that took place. And the method by which I would do that, I have my own meditation practice, yes, but I would actually read some of the original texts, whether it was Lao Tzu or Old Testament texts, and I would read some of the verses and fall into some of the sacred geometry. And in those sort of deep studies of those geometric patterns and, you know, sort of linguistic sayings, if you will, constructed that treatise, homo mysticus. And, you know, there was sort of an aha moment as I kind of put all those pieces together, which allowed me to sort of see some, a lot of the similarities between artificial intelligence, machine learning, Also DNA and some of the biological elements of neurological processing and how those analogies and sort of pieces come together to provide a nice, you know, empirical based foundation for many of the mystical practices that have been around for a long time. So there's still a lot of missing pieces. There's no question about it, but you can start to see the picture emerge when you go as deep as you can go from a psychological perspective and go as deep as you can go from an intellectual perspective philosophically, and then again, from an AI and machine learning perspective, you start to see some of the patterns that sort of under, you know, underpin our experience of reality and a system of metaphysics emerges from that. I mean, and so that was, you know, homo mysticus came out of that. And also this sort of Gnostic reading of Kant is also came out of that as well, because you know, he tends to be looked at as as kind of an analytic philosopher and and sort of, uh, you know, very intellectual. But there's a a way to look at his text as a sort of kind of an illustration of a knowledge-based reality through which we move, right? And from that perspective, you, you can kind of see the machine that he devises to create his system of metaphysics, right, which he tries to establish on empirical grounds. But by doing so, he's establishing sort of at some level he's isolating and constructing and describing the prism through which we experience reality, right? And that's where the sort of the Gnostic piece can be pulled out of that, right? Because there's a lot of truth and and rational strength to the framework that he, he put in place. That's That's one of the reasons why he's considered to be, since Aristotle, he's one of the most preeminent philosophers in the Western tradition, there's a reason for that. But at the same time, and he wasn't by any stretch a mystic, right but he also was able to sort of isolate this sort of the idea of knowledge or epistemology away from consciousness which he completely removes and abstracts from right and in sort of an indirect way he helps divide the two and create much of the foundation the philosophical foundation for for mystical practices which most of which are, you know, you you have a prism of the mind through which you experience reality, but that isn't who you are, right? So Kant isn't a yogi necessarily, but if if you read him from a yogi's perspective, you're like, this is perfectly aligned and in tune with, you know, uh, Vedanta and, you know, the, the system of yoga developed by Patanjali, right? Even though he wasn't necessarily informed by those, right? So now you get this sort of the same kind of empirical deduction that happens when everybody starts to fall on the same conclusions from different lines and perspectives, right? It's like, well, okay, well, is that an accident or is there something else going on? Right. So it's another one of those examples, but yeah, that was one of the biggest aha moments. And it was, you know, you go down that rabbit hole, it's not clear where, where you're going and whether or not you're coming out, but. It was an interesting exercise, and the, you know, the writing allows you to explore certain ideas in a way that you couldn't otherwise, right? You can kind of have knowledge and understand things, but when you start to try and write it and sort of group and, and organize some of those thoughts, there are pieces that fall out of it then, that can, in turn, inform a, a system of metaphysics, right, which, is, which was the, the, the purpose behind that book. Great. Right. Thank you.
2: Yeah, how I, how I listened is that there is a way for us to learn how to learn that's different than what we're doing now and even thinking about it as being responsible for our learning rather than waiting for the culture or the the natural system that we have in place today to train us to do something. You triggered me to think about the flip between if we could learn how to learn and be curious like yourself, the world we could create, whereas if we continue to be trained to do something, we become the machines, right? We become the people that are the machines while the machines advance beyond us and can learn how to think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you hit on a very important topic, right? In terms of how relevant is our perspective to the nature of reality, right? At the micro level for us individually and sort of at the social or even the the global level, right? So the last research paper that I just published is addresses that specific idea, which is, you know, if you end up with a somewhat empirical foundation of metaphysics what you end up really appreciating is that at some level our psychology our belief systems right what we hold to be true has a very significant and direct effect on what our reality ends up being right again at the micro level a more broad level sociologically and throughout the world right so yes, we can either be programmed by everybody to think a certain thing, or if we're thinking critically for ourselves, and we can truly recognize the relationship between our belief systems, our attitude, the energy we bring to any experience, and what the effect and what type of reality that in turn creates, you now have sort of inverted the whole paradigm of life, right? You you, you now have the ability to not only create your own reality, but have the ability to sort of affect from a butterfly effect sort of way, you know, and ripple effects across all of society in ways that you can't really imagine. But in order to get there, there has to be sort of a, a somewhat of a leap of faith that says, Hey, my mindset, you know, you fake it until you make it. It's one of the expressions that I love. Well, why does that, why is that even a thing? Because it actually works. Well, how does it, how does that work? Right. And it's because people really understand that if in fact you present yourself and you be, and are aware and sort of exude a certain energy, right. Then the world will sort of evolve and sort of bend around you in a way. And it's, it's mystical, right? Because it's doesn't necessarily have a foundation in physics. And as they can't explain it, right. It's psychology and they don't really understand how that works. They understand what diseases are and how to fix people, right? And then a good, healthy mindset in turn makes sure that you're healthier. But the true import of that is that your mindset has a, such a powerful impact on not only your life, but the reality at large. We wrote a piece that talked about how it is a, basically a framework, what I called a reference architecture as to how those two things might interact, mind and matter in a way that could be explained such that you know, there's sort of an iterative snowball effect about your beliefs and who you're friends with and, you know, what you think is possible. It's extremely profound. It's deeply mystical, right? Because at, at the fundamental mystical level, right, there's the belief that you, in fact, and, and the Godhead are no different, right? And that, in fact, there's a sort of creative bond between the two, right? I mean, ultimately, that's what Jesus's message is among the, many other prophets, Right. Well, you, you know, you, you might not be able to experience that. So you have to sort of extract yourself from that and say, okay, well, that's an interesting hypothesis. Right. But like, but let's empirically, let's, let's decide to believe a couple of things and let's try it for a month. Right. Or, or maybe a couple of weeks, let's see what happens. Right. And then you have the ability to sort of follow a bit of a playbook when you assume that you can kind of build your own data and say, well, okay, well, what is the impact if I take a better attitude to my work? Right if I take a better attitude to my family, right? Small things, right? It doesn't have to be big things. And what invariably you realize, which speaks to the metaphysical underpinnings of it and the truth of many of those mystical tenets, is that your whole world changes. In some ways you can anticipate, but in some ways you can't even anticipate in sort of mind blowing ways, right? So it's a fascinating exercise,
0: right? I, I love the, the mechanics of what you're saying, the mechanics of what we believe in ourselves and what we create in the world and believe in others is like the first step ante into running those experiments and then watching the results. And we realize, wow, we really can do something, right? Part of our whole methodology is to believe in yourself, believe in others first and create that in story. Like sometimes we even say, let's say it out loud. So it goes into the world, but it also goes back into our own heads, right? Yes. You believe believe it. And then you act that way and all of a sudden you go, Holy, Holy smokes, that worked. I like, that really worked. Maybe I could do that other places.
1: And like, so what are the, then you you ask, well, what are the limits, right? Right. I mean, if if you look at anyone who's accomplished, like, I mean, I just look at the athletic landscape, right? You look at what these, it's, they're like superhuman things that are being accomplished. And you're like, how did he, like, well, he has these God-given gifts, right? And then when you hear them talk, they're like, no, 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 I was up at five in the morning right? For 12 straight years, right? Shooting 7,000 jump shots, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't seem like a God given talent. It seems like they actually created that, right? Like, okay, but who's willing to do that, right? To create that outcome. So, and so and then all of a sudden, again, all of these fields start to be tied together, right? Just in terms of okay, well, what how do all these people? How are they successful? What, you know, so what are the common grounds there? And then you start to say, well, what is it about the nature of experience and the nature of reality that allows these things to be true? Right. And then you, then you end up with sort of, you know, the deeper philosophical and theological questions, which I, you know, I of course have interest in, but that's sort of a different world, but nonetheless it, it forces you as people have been doing for thousands of years since we've, you know, invented writing and books, right. They've been asking these questions for very good reasons. You know, and there's been a parallel mystical tradition that has evolved right alongside philosophy the whole time. Right. So they're very old questions, but we now live in an era where many of the sort of the question marks, we can at least start to, you know, explore empirically. And that's, that's very unique.
0: Yeah. Thanks Peter. The other thing that shows up for me is the term responsibility. Right, because now, now we have the ability to be responsible for our own learning versus somebody else telling us, you do these things and then you live your life and then you die. But now it's like, no, we can be responsible and we can create. And that's a, that's a scary thing. Right. That, that, like, right. And then it comes back to, if it's that scary, then believing in ourselves, believing in others, the faith part, the believing, the engaging that way shifts the world and then how long does it take tipping point to happen to where yeah. people start to like, this is like, Oh, this is, Oh, I need to believe in myself here. This is the space to do that. Got I got it. Oh no, I didn't believe in the group. Okay, great. We'll do that. Wait, no, no, no. I need to use this. I need all these tools that show up in the world that didn't before, because now they can go, but this is my life. I'm responsible for it. I create it not, not I'm waiting for somebody else to tell me what to do, which has been the dominant strategy for the last 200 years.
1: Right, C- certainly since World War Two onward, right, and and the fact that there's a lot of people that can think for themselves right now, I mean, concerns a lot of people.
0: Yes, yes, as it should, right. Well, if <laughs> if you of- don't believe in people, <laughs> it's really bad to have them with the ability to, to think. Right.
1: So you know, and then you know, so what are the impacts? And you a good word that you just use is the tipping point, right? And you know, we live in an age of there's so much potential, right, but with these rapid changes, right, sometimes you have these shifts that aren't necessarily gradual that occur, right, whether they're socially or otherwise, right? So, you know, there's a lot of what you might call, you know, socio-political risk in the current environments, right? You can see it playing out, certainly with Russia and Ukraine. I mean, there there's an ideological war going on over there, right? So, and as much as one side might think that they're 100% right, and, and it's good versus evil, there's another side that has a totally different perspective. And it's not just one guy sitting in the Kremlin. You know, so, so it's you know it's interesting times, very interesting times.
0: Yeah, I th- thank you for that. And I just figured this out not too long ago. I said, "Oh, may you live in interesting times." I go, "Oh, that's kind of cool." And I realized it's a curse. People would say that to people, "May you live in interesting times," as in, "May your life be terrible and messed up and crazy," and it's a curse on somebody. But yeah, I think we are in interesting times because things are not like they used to be.
1: And, you know you have to have a capacity for change you know and, and melissa and i've talked a lot about this because you know i, I look I, I wore a suit to work for 20 years i mean i was right there with the sharks right and, and in some respects i'm still swimming in the same pool right at least in some part of my life and it's been interesting to see how that pool has evolved right there's all sorts of corporate responsibility now and diversity and inclusion and so the, the corporation has evolved but you know, those sort of male dominated, sort of patriarchal power structures that come into play in these large organizations. Right. Like, you know, much of that hasn't really changed. Right. And so you have this sort of mass exodus right from all these companies. These people don't want to deal with that nonsense anymore, particularly the younger generation. So now, you know, companies are struggling and this is part of what's driving inflation. Right. So, you know, all these things are tied together in a certain way and you know it's hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around it because as much as the sort of the economy is shifting, you also have minds are shifting too and consciousness is shifting. And it's like you can't quantify that necessarily, right? I think they call it they have a name for it in the workforce now. They call it like where people are just dropping out or whatever. But clearly there's something else going on, right? They're not just saying I don't want to go to work, right? There's like a whole generation of people that are reevaluating their values and their principles and how they want to lead their lives and rejecting old paradigms. Right. So, and that has impacts, you know, all over the place. Some which you, you know, have economic indicators, but some which don't. Right. And, you know, that's another very unique part about, about, about the time that we live. That's, that's hard to quantify necessarily, but certainly when you have kids and you kind of see them, you know, all their friends, are they all going to this, they're all doing that. And it's like, well, hold on a second. You you don't have to do any of that. You can do, like I've had this conversation with my daughter and right? like, you, you can do, just stop. Take, take all of that stuff off the table that everybody's been doing for a hundred years. What do you wanna do with your life? And you'd be posed with that question as an 18 year old. Like, what do they do? They've never had that kind of freedom before, right? They've been told what to think for 18 years, right? No one's ever said, well, you know what is it that you want to do with your life, or you know what do you want to do?
0: I'll go a little further, Peter. We've been having that story for the last hundred and fifty years, right? right? And now it the story is broke. Like, which means my story is people can see that that story is broke. Before, right. Or it was very powerful. It was useful. It was great. It was powerful. It worked really well, right? But now it's broke, yeah. and the uh, the next generation, and like I'm the last boomer, right? And I'm 58, so uh, you know maybe 10 years left. Right. And then it's all boomers are gone and this whole new big generation's coming in and yeah, they have a different world and they're creating it. And I'd love to watch them.
1: Yeah. It should be fascinating. Look, hopefully they have the right values to be able to shift and guide their energies in the right place. I mean, that's what we can hope for that, that people aren't going to fall off the rails necessarily as they, as they get all this newfound freedom, but you know, there's still elements of basic societal structure that are necessary. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I, you know, can't throw the baby out with the bathwater I end up using that expression quite a bit. Right. And that has ramifications across all sorts of disciplines, but, you know, and this is part of my personal challenge as well, is taking sort of this mindset into a corporate structure that's providing services to our clients from which all these families are being supported. Right. So, you know, how we run our business and how we impact and touch our clients, well, that's, we're having an impact on on society at some level, right? And you want to have sort of a an open mind in terms of how you run your organization. But it's one thing to sort of pay lip service to you know diversity or inclusion or whatever. It's another thing to really facilitate an environment and cultivate an environment where people feel that they can express themselves, get their ideas out on the table. And that process by which ideas are selected and moved forward becomes ingrained into the culture of the organization, right? Instead of, you know, somebody on top just saying, Hey, everybody needs to do this. And this is the reason. And if you don't do this, you're going to get in trouble, right? Which is typically how these organizations are, are, are done, right? So even inside some of these organizations, right, you can see these sort of old and new kind of value systems struggling to find a new balance, right? So, and, you know, the workforce is just churning through all these companies trying to find the companies are trying to figure it out. People are trying to figure it out. And this is sort of massive musical chairs right now, which is making it very difficult for, you know, for companies to to hold the line and manage in a very difficult global economy with all sorts of logistic challenges. Right. Which is, again, why prices are going through the roof. So, you know, it's all kind of into this this, you know, this whirlwind that we're in right now.
0: So thanks, Peter. We always leave a space at the end to say, what questions do you have for us?
1: You know, I, I have so many questions that I have unanswered for myself that I just, I'm tapped out on, on, on questions. <laughs> right it's now, great. But, uh, that I'm still working on and working through, but I really enjoyed speaking with you all this morning
0: and, you know, onward and upward blessings to everybody. Thank you Peter, for being on our show today. I, I think we could have talked for a couple hours but without any trouble, maybe days, but we'll go on from there. So, Peter, thank you for being on the show and wish you a great day. Thank you, guys. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. At Macklin Connection,
2: we believe making authentic connections with others can literally change your world. We invite you to share this podcast with one person that you care about. Maybe it's someone you haven't spoken with in a really long time and you'd love to reconnect. Or maybe it's the first person that popped into your head when you listen to this podcast, because you thought it would be perfect for them. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.